On today's episode of Marathon to March, Aaron Torres of Fox Sports joins me to discuss everything NIL, Transfer Portal, and much more. Thanks so much to Aaron for taking the time to do this. This is Marathon to March, and it starts right now. All right, I want to welcome on Aaron Torres of Fox Sports. Aaron, how are you doing today? Jonathan, I'm doing well, man. Uh, we've been trying to make this work for a few days here, so I'm glad we were able to connect. I hope you're doing well as well. Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I want to talk to you about really is you've I've seen you tweeting a couple a couple times and just with everything going on in the college basketball offseason, the transfer portal and just NIL is a complete mess, some would say. No one really knows what the rules are, what you're allowed to do. And I think you mentioned something that was interesting the other day, how every college basketball player is pretty much a free agent 365 days of the year. What's your overall take on the new rule changes for the transfer portal and just NIL and stuff like that? Well, I'll tell you, Jonathan, you know, I think we all knew when the one-time transfer rule came in and it came in last summer, but it had really been being talked about for two, three years before that. I think we all knew it was going to be crazy. What I don't think anybody anticipated was when NIL came in immediately after that, um, it changed everything because now, and we're seeing this now, I don't know when this episode will drop, but we're recording Wednesday night, April 27th, and we're approaching this, this deadline to enter the portal. And I think there's a lot of kids now that, you know, these, these mid-major, low-major kids that, um, you know, somebody – frankly, is, is making them a promise. And, hey, get in the portal. We need a guy just like you. And it, they might not be reaching out to that player directly, but somebody close enough to that player. And <clears throat> if it was just about a transfer, I think a lot of these guys would say no. But now we're at the point where financially you almost literally and metaphorically can't afford not to transfer where, you know, these small schools and, you know, whatever, Missouri Valley, Ohio Valley, uh, Horizon League, whatever – they, they can't afford to compete if an SEC school or an ACC school or a Big Ten school is willing to pay these guys something. So that's where I think the craziness has come in, is I don't think that it would be quite as hectic if NIL wasn't in play. But now NIL is in play. And like I said, I think there's a lot of kids that are just like, let me see if I can get something. And then there are certainly players that know they can get something and that the school that they're at can't compete with. Yeah, I thought – what happened the other day with Nigel Pack was very interesting because he commits to Miami, but he didn't commit to Miami. And it wasn't released by like any sort of national media member or anything. It was released by a guy that I think runs a company that he, he's doing an NIL deal with. And we were told, or at least I think we assumed that when NIL came into play, it wasn't going to be like this recruiting pitch for, uh, for, for schools. But now it certainly appears that that's how it's being played out. Zero doubt. No, I mean, it was crazy. I was actually at the USC football spring game on Saturday. And Nigel Pack, um, I had been told by somebody pretty close to him that it was going to be Purdue. He's from Indianapolis originally, went to Kansas State, and it was going to be Purdue. And then about, you know, Saturday morning, you start to see the buzz pick up on Miami. He ends up committing to Miami. And about a half hour later, somebody sends me a tweet from this guy, John Ruiz, who's a lawyer, and I guess you would call him a booster in Miami, saying, welcome to the family. Uh, Nigel Peck has signed a, a NIL deal with my company for 400000 for two years, 800000 total, plus a free car. And, you know, that was the most egregious, you know, NIL that we've seen. And I, I saw a lot of fans 
frustrated for the reasons that I mentioned. You know, my school can't financially compete with that. But also to your point, Jonathan, you know, the NCAA said when um, when they put an NIL, two things, and there was no way they could police it, but the goal was it can't be a recruiting enticement. In other words, you can't just pay somebody to come to your school and it can't be pay for play. They can't be coming there because you're paying yeah. them. You know, it's supposed right. to be designed, as we all know, when Bryce Young wins the Heisman and he's making tens of millions of dollars for Alabama football, he should be getting a cut of that pie. Same with Oscar Shibwe at Kentucky. Same with, uh, you know, Hunter Dickinson at, at Michigan. Same sure. with C.J. Stroud, the quarterback at Ohio State. And so I think there were a lot of people frustrated. Now, what I found interesting was on, I guess it was Monday or Tuesday, Miami got another commitment from another transfer. And the same guy, John Ruiz, tweeted out, welcome to the family, but he didn't give financial details. And I'm guessing that somebody got in his ear and somebody wasn't happy. Um, right. You know, I'm guessing somebody from the athletic department was like, dude, we appreciate your support. But if you're Miami basketball, I don't think you can recruit a player now unless you're offering, you know, pretty substantial NIL. And I think it it weirdly made the job of the staff harder. You know, it's funny, like, like, you know, I saw a story that quoted Jimbo Fisher um, earlier today. And, you know, I, the Jimbo Fisher stuff I thought was a little bit overblown by the national media. I couldn't believe the coverage that it got. But he readily admitted, he said, you know, some of my frustration with those stories is one, the, the numbers were inaccurate and I believe them to actually be inaccurate. I, I don't believe that every Texas A&M recruit was paid a million dollars, despite what the report said. But he said, my biggest frustration was I had guys on my team coming to me and saying, coach, if this guy's getting this much, why don't, why am I not getting anything? And he had to explain to him, Hey, you can call Joe Schmo and let him know that, that, you know, they'll tell you exactly what they're getting from us. So it's a crazy new world, Jonathan, but the Miami thing was, I think it was eye-opening for a lot of us. I think it was eye-opening for people at Miami too, mm-hmm. that probably were not very happy that that number got out because again, it, you know, from a, whether it's for future recruits or players on the team, I can imagine they weren't very happy with that. If I had a son on the team, I would go to the coaching staff and say, if this kid's making 400K, I, my son just helped you do an elite eight. I'm not, I'm not coming back for free. So it's an interesting new world. And like you said, I think that Miami thing was really, really eye-opening for a lot of people. Yeah, and then kind of transitioning, but staying along the same line. We found out the other day, actually yesterday, that Mark Emmert's stepping down, uh, I believe, next summer, uh, June of 2023. So what do you think? And, and this is a guy that we, we know is criticized by everyone. He's... There's, the NCAA is slow on decision-making. When they're handing out punishments, they're, they're slow in the process. What do you think his him stepping down kind of means for college athletics and more specifically how basically Transfer Portal and NIL is being run? Yeah, you know, I'm somebody that, you know, I don't always necessarily agree with the common sentiment, you know, and I think that's why I think I've had some level of success in my career. I'm an independent thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, but – this is one where I'm in universal agreement with everybody. This guy was totally incompetent. Uh, I've told the story many times now. So if anybody's ever heard me say this, I apologize. But at the final four, he had a press conference and really, he really only does about one or two of these a year, right, Jonathan? So you'd think a lot has changed. He knows he's going to get tough questions and you'd think he'd have good answers. Instead, this was, you know, three, four weeks ago at the final four. Um, every question he had, I mean, you know, Bruce Lee couldn't duck duck as well as this guy was ducking these questions it was unbelievable man it was like you know he he was asked about nil well it's a state-by-state thing we really can't do much about it 
Uh, well, what about the transfer portal? Well, this is what the school presidents wanted. I really couldn't do much about it. Well, what about transgender athletes? Well, we follow the Olympic model and it's really out of our control. And it's like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to have the perfect answer to every question, but you can't deflect every single thing either. And so, you know, it was eye-opening for those of us that were there. Um, you know, he basically called Coach K a liar uh, on the podium, which was kind of incredible. Um, so, you know, Coach K had just left and Jeff Goodman asked him a question and, and Mark Emmert basically called Coach K a liar. So, you know, I bring it up to say I, all the criticism is justified. Um, it's the NCA. Obviously, look, it's an evolving job. Um, but Mark Emmert has been entirely too reactionary instead of proactive. Um, and this is a changing landscape. And we've spent a lot of time talking about NIL, transfer port, all that stuff. And it's like, you know, again, these are things that if if you knew it was coming and you knew you had to have a plan in place, there should have been a plan in place so that some of the things that are happening now could have been avoided. And so I know there's a lot of people that will sit there and say the 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 power of the, the president of the NCA in this day and age is a little bit limited, and it may be. But I'm sitting here telling you, man, it, whoever the next guy or girl is that has that job literally cannot be worse than Mark Emmer. And I sincerely mean that. And I'm not the type of guy that says it because everybody else in the media says it. But when everybody else in the media says it, they're 100 percent accurate. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like there's any control in in that office. They don't know what's going on. And like they themselves don't even know like what the rules rules are with the transfer portal and NIL and everything that's going on, if there is any rules. And speaking of someone that may not know what's going on, so to speak, you've talked a lot about the whole Shaden Sharp situation at Kentucky and Throughout the year, John Calipari was very adamant about Sharp coming back and playing for them next year. And then he declares for the draft. He announces he's probably going to stay in. And why wouldn't he? He's a lottery. He's probably a lottery pick. He's going to go make a bunch of money in the NBA. But then this whole thing comes out about how nobody knows when he graduated. People think he graduated in May, but it's possibly graduated in October. There was conflicting reports. What did you make of the whole saga that, that had to do around Shaden Sharp? Yeah, for people who don't know all the details, I mean, number one high school basketball player in the country uh, for this current senior class of 2022, decides to enroll early, kind of like a, a football recruit would, second semester, I'm going to train, get ready for next year, hmm. and becomes draft eligible. Um, and, you know, what, what my, you know, you asked about my reaction I said the day that he announced he's reclassifying, I said, I'd be concerned if I'm a Kentucky fan. And every person in the media, except for me, said, you know, he isn't graduating in 2020. You know, for people who don't know, the NBA draft, you have to be 19 years old and one year removed from high school basketball. Yeah. Everyone kept saying he's a 2022 player. He's not going to be eligible, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Jonathan, man, let's just use some common sense. There is no reason and it makes no sense for him to come to college a year early unless they are trying to fast track his time to the NBA. It's just when you're going to be a potential lottery pick, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, especially when you're 19, going to be 19 years old and you're going to be eligible if you can figure out a way to prove that you're a high school class of 2021. So I told Kentucky fans this. I said, look, this guy's coming to, fig to get out of high school to figure out a way to be eligible. I don't have all the details. I don't know how it's going to happen. But my guess is he never plays a minute for Kentucky basketball. That's exactly what happened. People yelled at me at the time. They crushed me at the time. You don't know what you're talking about at the time. And I've been 100% correct. And so this week, you know, he 
Well, really, the last two weeks he declared, but there was questions of whether he was really eligible. And, you know, then supposedly this this document was uncovered of proof that he graduated from high school in May of 2021. And it's like these feel like documents that we would have known about before April of 2022 when it's time to declare for the draft if such a thing existed. So, you know, I'm not here to accuse anybody of anything. But this is kind of the the dark side and the underworld of college sports and college basketball specifically. I love college basketball, but you know, it these are some of the stories that you come across when you cover this stuff. And this is among one of the wilder ones ever, where you know it seems like the camp, you know, the people around the kid are really trying to game the system. Kentucky fans are frustrated. I think even some NBA people are frustrated. Like, you know, if you're a player that's competing with him for a draft spot or for money or for this or for that. I can understand where you'd be frustrated. So it's a crazy story all around. Um, But I I tend to think that, you know, he's going to be in this draft. He's going to be drafted pretty high. I don't know where. I would say somewhere probably between like 7 and 15. (laughs) But I don't think he's ever going to play a minute of Kentucky basketball, and the Kentucky fan base is not happy right now. Yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned something about the, like, hidden document almost that got found this month. And what was interesting about that is just if they just, like, found this document about him graduating last May. Like, what did they send to Kentucky about him him graduating? Because you need proof of graduation of high school before he were to enroll in the university. The other crazy part was he went back to high school this year. Like, so he was, you know, he, they claimed that he graduated May, 2021. Then he went back to high school. Then he left early to go to Kentucky. And so on the one hand, that kind of does play into that makes sense that he would have graduated in the spring. But it doesn't make sense because he also, um, you know, went back to his high school. And so and by the way, you know, I I know enough people in Kentucky, they were recruiting him for 2022. They were not anticipating him and his camp, um, you know, with this reclassification thing. So, you know, listen, like I said, this is some of the, you know, if you want to call it dark side, dark side, I don't know what it is. It's just some of the fascinating stuff, man. You know, you have you feel bad. These young people that are younger than you, Jonathan, that that, you know, are commodities and you know they're worth a lot of money to a lot of adults and I think they get used and abused and you know this kid's probably gonna be fine he's probably gonna make a lot of money for his family I don't know how much he's gonna make or how good he's gonna be or if he's gonna be a 20-year NBA player or a two-year NBA player but this is some kind of the dark stuff of college basketball but to your point again um, if there was proof that he graduated in May of 2021 it doesn't feel like it would have taken us until April of 2022 to actually find the documentation to prove it. Yeah. And then the other thing is I don't consider myself an NCAA rules expert or even like something close to that, but I'm not sure it's legal for him to graduate high school and then go play in EYBL um, before school. So, well, no, I think you can do that um, because they're like, you know, like Sakai Ziegler this year from Tennessee, he graduated from high school and was just looking for a spot and they saw him last summer, but it doesn't change the point that you're making Jonathan, which is, Kentucky was recruiting him for 2022. Arizona was recruiting him for 2022. There was never an anticipation at any point that, you know, he was good. Well, I take that back. There was some buzz at various points, but then to your point, by the end of the summer, that buzz was gone and he was going back to high school. And so it's just a very weird deal. Um, Kentucky fans are really frustrated. They thought they had the number one recruit in the country coming in. You know, I don't, I can't even make an analogy. There's nothing that immediately comes to mind. You know, I call it like Arch Manning committing to Texas and then never playing a minute. But, you know, football players have to go for three years. So 
there's just nothing like it. And, you know, listen, here's the other thing. I don't know how good this kid is. I mean, I, I think he's really talented. I don't know how he could, he would have been in college basketball next season, but now it leaves a gaping hole where you think you have a potential top five pick in the draft leading your team next year. And nobody feels bad for Kentucky. They have the reigning national player that you're coming back, but you know, you can't replace a top five pick in April or May in the portal. So it's crazy times and, and it, it's a crazy sport, man. It really is college basketball. Yeah, so what I want to go to next is you've you've kind of become like the leader of the must bus, so to speak, the, Ar the Arkansas hype train. And what Eric Musselman has built at Arkansas in just a short couple of years is fantastic. They've now been to back-to-back -back Elite Eights. You had them at number one, I want to say, in your top 25, then moved them because of the UNC ret returns. Where do you expect this like Arkansas program to be, and do you think they're – going like going to be here for a while is one of the top programs in college basketball. I just want to correct you on one thing. I was on the must bus before anybody knew what the must bus was. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, no, I know, you know, but no, Eric Mussman was at Nevada before he went to Arkansas. And I had a chance to get up there, catch some practices, get to know him, get to know his staff, many of the guys that are currently with him in Arkansas. And you could just see, I mean, you know, everybody knows his background now, but former NBA head coach, uh, for you know, coached in the assistant coach in the NBA, the G League, the D League, the ABA, whatever the CBA, which is an old minor league. And this guy was just wired different. And I and I really thought when he got to Arkansas, it was the perfect fit. It was a fan base that was hungry. It's a fan base that's going to give him every resource that he needs to succeed. And like it's easy to forget now, he made a Sweet 16 at Nevada in 2018, and then 2019. They were in the top 10 for most of the year. Like, yeah. that's no joke. And so, you know, I really thought he would have success at the high major level whenever he got a shot. I can't lie and say I thought back-to-back -back Elite Eights, you know, the, all the success that they've had now, the number two recruiting class coming in. So, you know, in the short term, well, what I would say is this. You asked me about the, the state of the program overall. I just think as long as this guy's the coach, they're going to be fine because, you know, he's one of the few coaches um, – you know, he's embraced the transfer portal before anybody. Uh, the year I went up there, they had three, four kids sitting out. The year before, they had four or five kids sitting out during their Sweet 16 run. Um, you know, and, and I think he's, with his NBA professional background, he's comfortable in the world where you might only have a player per year. There's a lot of coaches that are, are getting comfortable because they have to. But I think they want to go back to the world where you get players for three or four years. And Eric Musselman, I think, in, in many ways, operates better in that world. Um, you know, he's told me a story when he was in the CBA, which was an old minor league. Um, you know, his team is in the playoffs. He's fighting and scratching and clawing to make a name for himself as a head coach. They're flying to play somewhere in the playoffs. And during the layover at whatever airport, his three best players get called up to the NBA and he's got to go compete for a championship without his three best players. So if you can handle that, uh, you can handle, um, you know, only having a really good player for a full season plus a full offseason before it. So I'm really, I'm really, obviously it goes out saying I'm very bullish about him and the program that, you know, I don't even want to say he's building, it's built. You know, I mean, now, can he take it to the next level, final fours, national championships? I think those are the logical next steps. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse here because it's really hard to get to back-to-back -to -back elite eights. But, you know, you just talk about a coach and a program that, you know, I think holistically has all the answers, whether it is, you know, the head coach, whether it is the resources provided to him, the staff pool, you know, the salary of the staff pool, 
Um, you know, the way they recruit, the way they use the portal, the way they use high school. You know, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think NIL is an issue at Arkansas with the only state school, you know, the only power five state school there with multiple, you know, really big corporations backing universities. So, you know, I don't know that, but that would be my guess as well. And so you add it all up with a coach that's just hungry. This guy eats, sleeps and breathes. This is why I was bullish on the guy, high on the guy four or five years ago when I got a chance to know him in Reno, Nevada, and it's only continued in Fayetteville, Arkansas last three seasons. Yeah, and then to go with Arkansas, you kind of have Alabama, Auburn, a lot of these new SEC programs kind of driving the new era, so to speak, in college basketball. And then, of course, you have the transfer portal and NIL. So I think we're officially like in a new era, so to speak, of college basketball. But do you think the SEC is – well, why do you think the SEC all of a sudden is getting so good in basketball after being known as the football conference for the longest time? Yeah, I mean, I just think that a lot of schools have made really smart hires, you know, and, and it goes back. And this is another thing that I've mentioned many times, but the late Greg Sankey, or not, no, definitely not the late Greg Sankey. Greg Sankey's the current commissioner, but the late yeah. um, Mike, why, Mike Slive, I was blanking on his name for a second. Mike Slive was the commissioner before Greg Sankey. But the famous story is that, um, when they launched the SEC network, Mike Slive went to his school presidents and his school a- and his school ADs and said, look, we got a lot of inventory to fill during the winter months. This can't just be a football network, this SEC network. You got to invest. You got to put your money where, you know, behind resources and facilities and coaches and this and that. And the SEC just did an incredible job of that. I mean, you let, let's put it this way, Jonathan. Think about the coaches that are being fired in the SEC right now. Right. You know, Frank Martin made a Final Four. Ben Howland made three Final Fours at UCLA. He's out at Mississippi State. Um, you know, Conzo Martin, the guy near you, um, had success at previous stops. So that shows you how good the league is. So I think it starts with money, um, really good hires. And the other thing that I find with the SEC, I think a lot of people, you know, I, I have a background covering college football too, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. But I think people that are basketball specific, I don't, you know, what I always say about the SEC, people think of the SEC as a football conference or baseball is the second priority or this sport or that sport or spring football. SEC fan bases just want to win. And if an SEC team, if an SEC school is competing in a sport, they want to compete at the highest level. And you can criticize the SEC for whatever, but they support their teams with whatever they need. And it's not just football, but it's basketball, it's baseball, it's softball, um, it's gymnastics. You know, I mean, you know this, but some of these schools get seven, eight, nine thousand, ten thousand people for a gymnastics meet on a Friday night. And so the SEC, if we're I think the motto is, you know, the motto is it just means more. Right. But to me, what it really is, is if we're going to compete, we're going to compete at the highest level. We're not doing this, you know, one foot in, one foot out. Um, and so I think that's why they've had success in basketball. And I think it's only going to continue because all these schools are putting money and you have good coaches. Um, the schools you brought up, Alabama, Auburn, Arkansas, now Kentucky, Tennessee, aggressive in the portal, Missouri, your school, aggressive in the portal. Yep. Uh, this is what you got to be in 2022, 2023. And like I said, I think a lot of schools got caught flat footed of the old way of doing things. I mean, this whole sport flipped overnight just like that. Um, and if you, you know, there was a lot of schools that got kind of got caught, you know, kind of with their feet in the mud. And I think the SEC was ahead on a lot of things, ahead on the portal ahead on, you know, hirings four, five, six years ago that are coming to fruition now. And we're seeing the the dividends of it where, again, Arkansas is awesome going into next year. Kentucky's going to be good. 
Tennessee I like, on and on and on. It goes on and on down the list. Yeah, and I'm's got a good squad for next year, bringing back a bunch. The SEC just as a whole could pro- potentially, I think, have seven or eight tournament teams ne- next year if it all plays out that way. And it's not just a new era with these SEC schools. It's a new era with a lot of blue blood schools. UNC goes to a Final Four in Hubert Davis's first year. John Shire takes over for Duke. And I wanted to ask you specifically about Duke. What do you think of John Shire's kind of recruiting run, locking up the number one class in 2022, and then already having five kids signed for 2023? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we all made fun of the Coach K retirement tour. And, you know, I probably include myself in that. Um, You know, it it was, you know, it was whatever. But what I would also say is what, what I really realized, I didn't realize it until after the fact, but it allowed Coach K to solely focus on getting the best out of the 2021-2022 team, which I think he did for the most part. I mean, when you get to a Final Four, you want to win a national championship, but I think he got yeah. just about everything he could have out of that team. Um, and it allowed John Shire and his staff, and some of them are no longer there, to just focus, really focus on recruiting. And they, you know, they, they've cleaned up. And, and, and I don't know that I've ever really seen anything quite like it where – they, they signed the number one class in the country. That That's kind of become par for the course of Duke. But they basically have their whole 2023 class wrapped up as well, which is kind of nerdy basketball recruiting talk. But, you know, we're talking about most schools have, you know, Kentucky has one commitment um, right now for that high school class. North Carolina just picked up their second commitment for the 2023 class. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Kansas has a commitment. I don't think UCLA has a commitment. No. Duke has five guys all set. And they're already being able to start to evaluate the sophomore class, which will be juniors next year in 2024. So, you know, listen, the the way I put it is pretty straightforward is, you know, I don't know if John Shire is going to work. I don't think John Shire knows if John Shire is going to work. But you talk about being put in the best possible position to succeed as a first year, first time head coach. Um, There's no doubt about it. And again, we made fun of that Coach K retirement tour. But it worked out really, really, really nicely for Duke to allow Coach K to focus on this year's team and John Shire to get ahead on future recruiting classes. Yeah, that was something that I kind of pointed out, I think, almost right when Coach K announced he was retiring, was that it set up their recruiting fantastic. And then the last thing I want to kind of get to before I let you go here is you, you went to UConn, correct? I did go to UConn, yes. So I know you're a big U- UConn basketball fan. You know, not fan, but like you know, you like the program. And Danny Hurley, of course, is a very fiery guy. You have Jay Wright, who just retired suddenly as the, as the Villanova coach, one of the great coaches of all time in this sport. Where do you think it puts UConn as sort of the direction of their program, and where do you think they're headed in, in the Big East? Well, I'll tell you, you know, UConn, having gone there, having grew up in Connecticut, um, it has a lot of those SEC qualities where when UConn does something, they want to be the best. And I know, obviously, you know, football speaks for itself that, you know, it has not been very good the last, you know, five, six, seven. But listen, when I went to UConn, I was there a few years after Dan Orlovsky and the the football program was in the top 25. But even taking out football, you know, the women's basketball program speaks for itself. The men's basketball program speaks for itself. The baseball teams ranked in the top 15 nationally right now. The golf team had the lead at the Big East championships and fell apart. And I only know that because John Fanta, who covers the Big East incredibly well, was tweeting (laughs) about it all day today. Um, So the reason I bring it up is because 
You know, UConn is a school. They're building a new ice hockey rink on campus. They basically went from club team and ice hockey to Hockey East, which is basically starting up an SEC basically starting up a football program and going to the SEC. That's what they did in hockey. They yeah. they joined the toughest conference in the sport. So, you know, UConn wants to compete at the highest level. And I think this year, because we had COVID last year and UConn had struggled the previous couple of years, people got to see what UConn is and can be. That Villanova game was crazy. And now it's just a question of with Villanova, is there going to be a void? And by the way, maybe there won't be a void. You know, Kyle Neptune was with Jay Wright for 10 yeah. years and they might, they might, they might not miss a beat. I would also say, I think all three schools in the conference that have that have new head coaches, at least two of them definitely got an upgrade. Sean Miller at Xavier is definitely an upgrade from who they had previously. And uh, Thad Mata, I think, is an upgrade from Laval Jordan. Now, Shaheen Holloway might be an upgrade from Kevin Willard. I don't know. But I just bring it up to say, I think the league is slowly getting more competitive. Where you look at the teams, I mean, Providence has cleaned up in the transfer portal. UConn has had success in the transfer portal. Villanova returns a lot of guys off of Final Four teams. So I'm bullish on Dan Hurley. I guess that's the theme of the, the, the segment is I'm yeah. bullish on a lot of things. But I really do believe in Dan Hurley. But the Big East, the Big East excuse me, is going to be really tough. And I think part of the reason that the Big East doesn't get the credit it deserves, it doesn't have a contract with ESPN. ESPN right. has no, re, no incentive to promote it the way that they promote other conferences. But, you know, Providence was awesome this year. Villanova was awesome this year. UConn was actually awesome this year. UConn um, had a very good year. They did. They had a great year. And listen, you know, everybody, only one team goes home at the end of the tournament happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but UConn, you know, I don't I don't want to say they exceeded expectations because I had really high expectations. But they had a great year. They had a great run. It didn't work out. Um, so I, I'm very excited, though. I'm very excited um for dan hurley for the future but i'll say this too i'm I'm excited about the conference as a whole i really do kind of believe um that you know with with sean miller at xavier with thad mata at butler obviously shaheen holloway's resume speaks for itself along with providence and ed cooley along with dan hurley and uconn and we'll see what happens at villanova there's a lot of excitement around the league right now all right aaron i wanted to thank you so much for coming on today i really appreciate it and glad we could talk Jonathan, I appreciate your time, man. Um, I pushed back this interview like 37 times since we started <laughs> planning it. So I appreciate your patience, man. And I enjoyed talking college ball with you. And anytime you need me, holler, okay? Thank you so much.